but it's 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 really sad that uh, that dude's daddy had to die, like that he yeah. was told he died. That was pretty yeah. sad. I know. Because it 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 ruined their life completely. You're listening to the Moonshine. Episode 4, After the Fire. Last episode, my dad left us with a story that contained information I believe could be one of the most important pieces to solving this. After Slim's death, the two vehicles were confiscated, the house caught fire, and my great-grandmother Lillian left her three young boys with their grandparents. I still have no idea why mother would just abandon her children, which makes me wonder if she even had a choice in the matter. In this episode, we're going to review audio from my granny and my dad. We're also going to speak with Charity Roberts, who has a master's degree in psychology. Her and I discuss what was possibly going through Lillian's mind through all this chaos. Otis died, and then the house burnt just right after that, and it wasn't long till Lillian left the three boys. Mm -hmm. I think dude was maybe about three Mm -hmm. when she left him. I don't think there was any of them in school at that time. Yeah. I don't think Sonny was in school, but uh, because their age was so close. But uh, it was very sad. Dude never talked about it at all. Yeah. And uh, I know Ma and Pa never talked to him about anything of it either. Mm. And they never mentioned it to me. Yeah. Now, the only thing, I know that uh, over at the old home place across the road, they had a, I guess it was a, it was a pretty large picture of Otis in his casket. If I had to speculate, I'd say she feared for her life, and that fear was directed at law enforcement. Lillian had to be threatened. She was put under extreme duress. It could have been worse than any of us could imagine, especially if arson was involved. I'm certain she had to know that her husband was selling moonshine under the guise of his taxi service. An interesting spot, you know, whether she... (laughs) was more than just aware of the business, but if she knew how to have operated in it in, uh, in some capacity, if he couldn't, you know what I mean? If there was any, you know, how deep, how deeply involved was she, <laughs> you know, is, is kind of the interesting question, you know, would that have even been a thing at that time where women would have been allowed to have any involvement in that or, um, or might she have, you know, might she have known enough to potentially even, you know, carried on with it a little bit after he passed. And, and so the, you know, her involvement and therefore her risk 
you know, with whoever was involved in his potential murder, like how, what kind of position would that have put her in, you know, because if, if, like you said, the folks that he had dealings with didn't think that she was privy to what he did and had no, you know, no interest in continuing it, then she may not have been in any risk at all, but to, but to kind of see how things unfolded after he passed makes you think that maybe her involvement was, you know, even a little more or that he might've, you know, made her a little more aware of his dealings than, than what like nowadays we would imagine, you know? After finding a census in April 1930, which was before their marriage, I believe he was already running this business. Taxi driver was listed as his profession, and he was listed as single. My granny kept handwritten notes, one of which stated that they were married in 1931 in Alta, Kentucky, which is close to Louisville, Kentucky. Yeah, just the, you know just the toll that it takes on your mental health and your body and everything, you know, to be that young and to have, you know, probably back-to-back babies in those first, you know, handful of years that they were married would have been enough to sort of leave her in a, like in a vulnerable emotional state anyway, you know? So like you said, then, then the husband passes and then it's just one sort of tragic event after another that then further, you know, kind of crumbles her world. I think the psychology of it though would be, a lot different in an era where women were, you know, played much different roles in society. And, you know what I mean? That's kind of where my thoughts went with a lot of this, a lot of the questions that you were putting on here is that, you know, kind of at least having a foundational understanding of resources, I guess, that were available for women in that era and how much more difficult it would have been before social services and, you know what I mean? And things like that to, to even say, okay, now I'm suddenly a single parent, so I have A, B, and C that I can sort of fall back on to get me back on my feet, you know, those resources would have been non-existent, you know, or, or very hard to come by, you know, in a different, you know, time, you know, the right. time that she was in. So that's kind of why I was thinking that though I don't feel like I know a ton about that era, you know, you can only imagine that there would be pretty significant differences in you know, even the psychology of what a mom would have to deal with than, you know, than what I would have to deal with as a single mom in this era, you know. Charity now goes on to speak about the psychology impacts Lillian might have experienced marrying at the young age of 17 and with the sudden loss of her husband. I think there's so many factors that play into, you know, whether we're talking about in the 30s or, you know, in today's culture, I think there's so many factors that play into a woman's psychological health and mental health and how it pertains to motherhood and wifehood and, and that sort of thing. So I asked how, you know, how old she was, how young she was when they married, because even taking that into account, 17 years old, um, and then having three children all under the age of six, when he passed, you know, you can only imagine the the, the mental um, weight of being such a young woman, not having um, the type of life experience that an older woman, you know, would have, um, and then taking on, you know, in that era, you're talking about either being pregnant or breastfeeding for six years, you know, probably almost immediately after she got married. So, you know, her whole life is... Uh, sort of solely dependent on this husband um, to make sure that 
you know, all things are taken care of inside the home because if you are that young and, and you're, you know, instantly thrust into wifehood and motherhood, you would exert like all of your energy, you know, kind of trying to sustain this home. And so to me, I would just think that would magnify um, the shock of, of losing a husband so suddenly who essentially ran two businesses, you know, for their family. Um, and, you know, there was probably a lot of security for her being young and likely moving immediately from her parents right in with her husband and never having that lapse of having to take care of herself. You know, her husband was running an illegal operation, but while risky, you know, most people get into illegal operations because they're lucrative. <laughs> and so, yeah. you know, odds are that she was fairly well taken care of, you know, and the kids were fairly well taken care of and probably even, you know, were able to afford some things that families who, you know, weren't, you know, doing those things couldn't. And so it wouldn't just be the emotional um, shock of suddenly losing a husband and not sort of having that um, backbone of support um, in the home, but the financial shock. I would think to be that young, have three small children, and suddenly the source of all of the financial stability in the home gone so suddenly. You know, I know that probably sounds a little callous because you would want to believe that it would be all about the emotional trauma of losing a husband. But, you know, like we said, you know, prior to social services and, you know, women in today's age, kind of knowing exactly, you know, that they would have resources A, B, and C to kind of go to to help get back on their feet. You know, a, a very young woman with three small children suddenly losing a husband would sort of have this double whammy of grief and, you know, being so grief-stricken, but also feeling suddenly so financially destitute as well. After his death, the vehicles were confiscated by law enforcement. They drove Slim's taxi around the town like it was a trophy, which I believe was a massive intimidation tactic Lillian had to silently endure every time it was spotted around town. Back to the time of his death that my daddy referred, relayed to me that Either the sheriff or the confiscated, I'm not sure, I always thought it was the sheriff, uh, confiscated both vehicles that uh, were left to Lillian and the, the boys. He coming after Slim's death, Otis's death, he come in and confiscated both those vehicles. And my dad told me that uh, one of the vehicles was driven by him for several years after that. Uh, you know, and you think about that, that's, that's uh, a very cruel thing to do to uh, uh, a widow and three young children to actually come in and confiscate their means of transportation uh, for whatever reason and leave them basically destitute. Yeah, you can definitely see 
I mean, I think there's so many different reasons why, um, you know, she would have to make the choices that she did. But you could definitely see just from, you know, put aside her needing to suddenly take care of these young boys and figure out how to run her home and all that kind of stuff just solely from, um, you know, like a psychological perspective, like the feeling of needing to escape, you know, that environment, escape that situation or, you know, like you said, the constant memories or, or the fact that she knows that there are people, you know, in the town, you know, in close proximity to her that are dangerous or that were out to get her husband, get her family, you know, just, it, it would be so difficult to stay. Take a minute to listen to a word from our sponsors. Leave the Lights On is a true crime podcast with a paranormal twist. Join creator Eliza and her co-host as they explore terrifying true stories and chilling crimes. Growing up, Eliza had an odd obsession with the darkest desires of humanity and an insatiable curiosity about the afterlife. Now, each week, Eliza brings you tales that will make you want to lock your doors, hide in your room, and of course, leave the lights on. Available on Spotify and Apple Podcast. Now back to the Moonshine Murder and Mayhem Podcast. Trying to retrace Lillian's steps has been very difficult. According to a census in May 1940, she was listed as the head of household, without a job, and widowed. At this time, she was still living in Warren County. A marriage certificate states that she was married to a Sam Bloodworth Frakes on November 25th, 1940 in Warren County. The only record that exists of their marriage is a certificate, though on September 17, 1942, United States World War II Army enlistment record states that he was separated but with dependents. So all of this leads me to conclude that sometime around 1941 is when she couldn't take it anymore and she skipped town. Well, and then just to kind of trail off, you know, with sort of her thought process behind, you know, what to do next, you know, how hard it would be for her to make the decision to leave the boys. I know that, you know, with her being family, the thought behind it for you is likely, you know, pain and, you know, and just sort of being at her within and, you know, potentially sort of, you know, just where her mind was at with just sort of being overwhelmed. Um, but I, I tend to think a little more logistically and I, I don't know, but I feel like in that era, there could have been a good chance that, you know, even just, just out of the love that she had for her children, that even if she didn't feel like her, you know, that she was in danger, that there was risk involved, you know, that would have made her flee the area without the boys, it could have even been financially motivated for the boys. She, she may have felt like leaving them with her parents would have been her only opportunity to potentially find a new mate, like to find another partner that would have helped them support her and her kids. You know, you can imagine that in the thirties, you know, toting around three toddlers would have been, would have been pretty hard to, you know, conduct any kind of courtship. <laughs> and so, yeah, you know, yeah. in her mind, she may have thought, Hey, I'm still very young. You know, if I can 
kind of go out and seek a partner without my children on my hips, you know, that will give us a, a better likelihood of finding a new support system for the family. Um, mm-hmm. You know, again, I know that sort of sounds superficial, but no, financial burden is a, re- is a reality, you know, for all women, yeah. even now, but in that time, I can only imagine, you know, that it would have been tenfold, you know, what a woman would have to deal with now in the resources that are available now for, you know, for a single mom in that situation. So, you know, there's a reality there where she, as hard as it would have been to leave her boys may have been doing it with the mindset that if she could find a new support system, a partner who could help support the family, then she could reunite with the boys. You know, she, it was almost securing, you know, securing a new means to an end kind of thing, you know. What would she do next? What could have been going through her mind? Yeah, and kind of going back to the theory that you had even with, you know, with things being risky for them, you know, to kind of go back to the beginning of the conversation, if if she, you know, we can assume that, you know, the years that she spent with him, that she knew, you know, that he, what he was doing and, and she was privy enough to the business to, to genuinely be in danger with the knowledge that she had where, you know, logic would tell us, like you said, that, you know, three babies, you know, three young boys wouldn't really be in that same risk category because who did they know? Who would they tell? You know, you know, what knowledge yeah. did they really have? You know, she was the real, she was the real risk to the business, you know, the real risk to whoever was involved in that, you know, where the children, no one would have anything to gain, you know, at that point by, you know, by doing anything harmful to them, they, they wouldn't have been a risk. So, so it's, you know, it definitely makes sense to me too, you know, that she might've felt like she she knew that they knew, you know, whoever they are, you know, every home probably struggled to feed their own mouths. And so, so her feeling that, you know, that it was that necessary to go out to try to find a new means of support now that her first husband was gone, you know, that was probably a pretty worthwhile reason, you know, to leave her voice behind in her mind, thinking that that would just be a temporary situation. They were in a safe environment and she was going to go out and, and, you know, secure, you know, a future for them, you know, a life so that they could support themselves. Um, Mm. Because what would a woman of that age in that time really done, you know, to be able to support three young boys, especially if she lost her only means of transportation and her only home that had been, you know, left for her. So, um, so I would, I don't know, I would just almost think that like, you know, the given roles for women in that time, especially as young as she was, um, you know, was to be a homemaker, obviously, you know, to be, to be the wife and the, and the mom and, you know, it was up to the men to, to support the home. And so the obvious choice is, I need a new man in this situation. <laughs> you know, we've got, yeah. we've got to find somebody else who can feed us. Um, you know, and like I said, that sounds so simplistic and, and sort of superficial, you know, in 2020. But, you know, in the 1930s, that probably had to become her first priority. Even if she was being threatened and felt like she had to leave, again, if she didn't have the financial means to take off without the support of, you know, family or a partner with her to sort of leave with her and the kids, then she may have realistically known she couldn't have cared for them, you know, taken them with her. Um, And, you know, it sounds like from the way that you described the boy's grandfather that he was a firm, dominant, you know, male figure. And so, you know, just even knowing that, okay, 
we may all be in some level of danger here, but I know that my boys are sort of under this umbrella of protection with their grandfather where, you know, without them until, you know, I can kind of escape this situation and then, you know, figure out how to get back when my, you know, when I'm no longer in risk. And so, yeah, it's not to completely discredit that theory because I think that, you know, it, it really would take a strong motivation for a mom, to, you know, to leave mm -hmm. her boys, especially really young boys. You know, there's a sense as a mom that you feel like, you know, children under a certain age, no matter whether you have a partner in the home or not, you know, really need their moms. They just need them, you know, and, and even probably that sense in that time was even stronger because like I said, I mean, now, you know, a lot of women work and they can leave their children in daycare and there's formula and, you know, there's all of these options and resources and support where in that era, you know, until a, a baby was two, three, probably even four years old, sometimes they were completely dependent upon their mom's presence because they were breastfeeding and they were, mm. you know, they, uh, there was family beds and they slept all together. And you know what I mean? I mean, that it was a different time. And so, you know, it would have had to have been an incredibly hard decision for her to leave that, you know, age of children, you know, behind. They were not talking about teenage boys, you know, little tiny babies that she knew, you know, were that dependent upon her still at, you know, the age yeah. that they were. That would have been, it would have had to have been the strongest motivations that you can imagine. And really, those are the only two things that I can imagine, um, you know, would would influence a mom to leave her three young boys. Like you said, it would either have to be grave danger and she felt like she had no options and she had to leave in order to save her life or possibly protect them or, you know, the financial motivation of having to secure some kind of a future for them, you know, in hopes that if she could get out there, you know, and find a partner who would, you know, would take that on that she could reunite with them and, you know, and kind of, you know, get her, got her footing again. Lillian tried to stick around for at least of three years that we know of. My granny remembers visiting her. And then when the boys were little, we we drove up and we had the three our three sons and mm -hmm. visited again. We didn't vis didn't see her or visit her very much. My dad remembers her third husband in Wisconsin, a Merle Gilroy. Uh, probably the last time I seen Merle was in the early 80s. Uh, Daryl, my brother, and, and my uncle Bud, of course Bud lived in Wisconsin and that was daddy's brother, his middle brother. Uh, we went up there to go hunting with Bud and and uh, one evening we went over to see Merle. Uh, but we seen Merle uh, as I was a teenager in early 20s. Uh, it was three or four different times we'd stopped in to see him. Daddy and, and Bud, uh, they, they thought a lot of Merle. They, yeah. yeah, they did. Yeah. Right now, at this very moment, it's crazy to think that there are more people who know and are talking about this story 
than when it actually happened. All of this trauma and grief that Lillian had to carry with her all of her life caused her to pass away way too soon. Seizure fatal to Appleton woman. Lillian Gilroy, 51, was dead on arrival at St. Elizabeth Hospital after she suffered an apparent heart attack about 8 p.m. at her home. She was assisted by an Appleton patrolman and given oxygen by the Appleton Fire Department Rescue Squad, but efforts failed to revive her. Lillian was still conscious when police arrived but stopped breathing and was unconscious when the rescue squad came on the scene. She was born September 7, 1917 in Moody, Texas, and had lived in Appleton for the past 16 years. Survivors are her husband, three sons, Harold, John, and Otis. This project has made me frustrated to say the least. Slim's death seems meaningless. Where was the justice for him? Where was the justice for Lillian and their children, Sonny, Bud, and my grandfather, Dude? The law failed my family all those years ago in Warren County, Tennessee. And all I can hope to do now is to find the truth and create my own justice. So that leads to the who. Who is responsible for this devastation? Was it local politics? A power play? A quota? Or was Slim involved with someone on the federal government's radar? Find out next on the Moonshine Murder and Mayhem podcast. Thank you for listening to the Moonshine Murder and Mayhem podcast. If you have any information, please contact us at moonshinemurderandmayhem at gmail.com or message us on the Facebook group.